You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2008. Today's episode is titled, So I'm a Christian, Now What? For most, the purpose of Christianity is to ensure that they will not go to hell. Certainly it is difficult to see much connection between Christianity on Sunday and work during the rest of the week. At best, Christians believe that they should be ethical in the workplace and, when possible, share their faith. Is this the only connection between faith and work? Let's listen to Dr. Chester's presentation on So I'm a Christian, Now What? Okay, what I want to talk to you about today is the topic of, okay, I'm a Christian, now what? Has anybody ever asked that question? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Well, let me give you a little personal testimony here. But uh, I was 11 years old, and I was in a denominational church, and um, something stirred in me, and I, I wanted to be baptized. And that, those circles, that's what you did when you became a Christian, as you went forward to be baptized. And I don't know that I fully understood what it was about. I met with a pastor. He talked to me about what it meant to become a Christian, what Jesus did for me, how I was a sinner, and... Um, I needed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and that would create in me then a new life. And it all sounded real good. I went forward and did all that. And then after you get through going through that whole process, you say, okay, now what? Anybody have that experience? Okay, now what? Well, that really, the, the, you're asking the question, well, what, what's it all about? What is this thing? And so uh, as I begin to ask that question, I entertained answers, and I entertained uh, several answers. One answer was, this is a get-out-of-hell card. That's a pretty good answer. Yeah, I like that, get-out-of-hell card. But is, is that all it is to it? Just get-out-of-hell card? Is that an ugly enough demon? Is that scary enough? Okay. All right. I mean, you can find those on the Internet. It's amazing what you can find on the Internet. Okay. Well, that's one possible answer. And frankly, that's an answer which a lot of people are very satisfied with. Uh, some people call it fire insurance. Okay, I got my fire insurance, so I'm set. I can go do whatever I want to do now. Well, other people go a little deeper and they say, you know, it's really about evangelism. Well, here's the Billy Graham, the great evangelist of the 20th century. Man, he touched millions and millions of people. It's unbelievable. The statistics I have seen are um, they tried to evaluate what percentage of the people that in his crusades went forward and accepted Christ then continued on with Christ. You know, a crusade is just an event, just like today is just an event, and it's an opportunity. And so these people would go forward, they would receive Christ, they would get some literature, they would be prayed for and be encouraged, and then Billy Graham's crusade left town. And so the question is, what percent of those people that, that accepted Christ went forward? Do you, does anybody have any, any idea of what that percentage is? 20%? 4? 2? 10? Somebody else? The numbers I have heard have been up as high as 6%, but I have heard as low as 3 So somewhere well under 10% of the people that accepted Christ in those crusades went on to grow in Christ. Does that startle you? And what is that? What's going on here? Well, that suggests that maybe evangelism isn't all that effective if growing in Christ is important. Or if all Christianity is is just, just uh, fire insurance, then it doesn't matter, does it? But do we believe Christianity is more than fire insurance? Okay, so evangelism may have some, some issues with it. Okay, what about this one? If you were to ask most people today, 
what's the essence of Christianity, what would they say to you? The Great Commission, right? And where's the Great Commission found? Matthew 28. Did you ever notice it's only mentioned once in the Bible? Have you all noticed that? It's only one time in the Bible. And yet, most Christians regard this as the core of, the, of Christianity. It's about evangelizing the world. True? Isn't that what you hear? I mean, that's what I hear when I talk to people all the time. So, could we possibly take a look at that this morning and ask ourselves, do we really have a clear understanding of the Great Commission? You know, I think part of the, the key to making church relevant is we have to connect. If we don't connect, we walk out the door and then we just do whatever. There's no relevance between what happens in here and what happens out there. And we've, we've got to knock that down. We've got to start making what happens in here relevant to our life. So it brings change to us. Otherwise, we're just playing a game. You know, I, I personally, I'm not into playing games other than golf. I play golf. That's the only game I want to play. I don't want to play games about Christianity because to me, life is short. And there's one thing certain at this point, barring the return of Christ, is I'm going to die. You're going to die. So we need to start thinking about making our days count. And that's what the psalmist says. Is you number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom about how you're living. So let's take a look at the Great Commission. And let's first look at the context. This was a mountaintop experience. Did you know that? You know, Jesus went to the mountains a number of times. And uh, I'm going to pick three pretty key experiences here just to look at. And I want you to notice that in uh, this text here in Matthew 28, we have the introduction to the Great Commission. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus was, had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You see, that's, that's the reality. That's true today. Some of us that may have come here today to have an encounter with Christ... But we're doubting. That's just the reality of human nature. Now, you ask yourself, what in the world could they be doubting? Christ died. He was risen from the dead. What sort of doubt? Well, can I just throw out a theory here for you to think about? And I'm not saying this is right, but I've been doing some thinking about this. Why would they be doubting? And I think one of the things they may have been doubting is they were very disillusioned. Because what did they expect Christ to do? They expected him to destroy the Roman Empire, which was repressing the Jewish nation, and release the kingdom of God on earth at that time. And so when that didn't happen, they're not sure what this is all about. So there's now doubt in them. So Jesus is wanting to try to set things straight. And I think that's largely what the Great Commission is about. But let's, let's kind of contextualize this. Let's look at some other mountaintop experiences he had. The first one wasn't too much fun. It's the temptation. Remember that one? Now you're saying, wait a minute, that happened in the desert, right? Well, remember the third temptation. What happened? They went up to a real high mountain. And the enemy says to Jesus... Now, now, think about this. Jesus has been in the desert 40 days, 40 nights with no food. He's already had two temptations. And the second one, he had to climb the top of a building. Now we've got to climb the top of a mountain. Do you think you'd be out of energy? I mean, give me an energy bar. Give me something. But he gets nothing. He's got to continue hungry to the top of this mountain. 
And the enemy is going to show him all the kingdoms of the world and say, look, if you just bow down and worship me, it's all yours. Now, guess what? Jesus' destiny is to rule the universe. The, the enemy was inviting him to fulfill his destiny illicitly. You hear that? That's a big picture for all of us. You know, we're all, we may get a picture of our destiny, but if you don't fulfill it in God's way, if you fulfill it illicitly, you're not doing what God wants you to do. So here we have Jesus withstanding this temptation here and giving us an example of how you cannot fulfill your destiny illicitly. Okay, the next major mountaintop experience was the transfiguration. Now, this is a situation where Jesus has got his Peter, James, and John. You know, Jesus was a discipler. You know, we ought, ought to think about how he discipled. That may be a good model for, for us and how we disciple. So he has his Peter, James, and John, and he says, okay, I'm going to take you guys up to the top of this mountain. And the reality, this is a learning experience, because what Jesus is going to do here is be transfigured and talk about his destiny with Moses and Elijah. And so here we have his disciples watching all this, and that's a picture. A lot of times when you are discipling somebody, you need to take them with you, even when they don't know what's going on or why. You just go with me, and you just observe and be part of whatever is going on in my life, because this is the way I'm going to train you. And what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration is we have a great picture of the future, of, the, of Jesus and his glory, and what's so interesting to me is the word that's translated for transfigure is the same word used in Romans chapter 12 where it talks about we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's metamorphosis. It is a change, a change in state that needs to happen in us. And Jesus gave us the picture here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, it's about the destiny. What releases us to our destiny is being transformed. So you see, you can't fulfill your destiny illicitly, and you've got to be transformed to fulfill your destiny. So these two key mountaintop experiences are tied to the destiny, not only of Jesus, but to us, to our destiny. Now we have the transition. This is what we call the Great Commission. And now we're talking about Jesus leaving, and in leaving, I'm going to suggest to you, he's going to talk about destiny. You see the themes? Destiny in each one of these. So let's just take a quick look at this. Here's where it starts out. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay, so what, does, what authority does that exclude? Okay, so Jesus has authority over my life. He has authority over my family. Does he have authority over my business? Are you sure? Does he have authority over my community? Okay, now I'm going to get real risky here. Does he have authority over my church? Oh, okay. I thought the elders did. Oh. Jesus has authority over this church. Okay. So all authority. Now, now why is this so important that he has to say all authority is his? What's the deal here? You know, if you're going to go and give somebody a directive, and they're going to pay attention to that directive... What relationship needs to exist for you to be able to give that directive? There's got to be authority. If I'm your boss and I'm going to 
you know, go out of town and I want Steve to do a project for me, I'm going to say, Steve, I have all authority in this company and this is what I want you to do. And what do you think he ought to do? He better do it, shouldn't he? Okay, particularly if I have a lot of D in my personality because I won't put it up with it if he doesn't do it. And there will be something to pay when I get back if he doesn't do it. Well, Jesus is letting us know he has the authority to issue the directive he's getting ready to issue. Okay, for those of you that doubt, and remember there's some of those guys up there doubting. There's 11 of them up there as far as we know, and some of them doubting. Probably doubting Thomas was one of them. You know, Jesus wanted to make it very clear. I've got the authority in heaven and earth. There's no other realms but heaven and earth. I got it all. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Okay, here's the directive. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that what it says? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, wait, something's wrong here. That's not right. This is what it says. Go and make converts of all nations. Right? Wait a minute. I, I've read some great commentators that have told me that's really what it says. It says go and make converts. Isn't that what it says? Don't we agree to that? You don't agree with that? My goodness, what's wrong with you? You're, you're, they got a good pastor? Is that the deal? Okay, so we're going to go back to this. Disciples? Is that really what it says? Uh, so are disciples different from converts? Okay, what's a convert? Somebody who professes? If you profess that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you might look like a convert. Does that make you a disciple? Okay, what makes you a disciple? You've got to follow somebody, huh? A disciple follows somebody else. So let's look at some characteristics of a disciple. How about the first one is he is a follower of the one he professes to be in relationship with. You profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he expects you, he's given you a directive to be a follower. Did you hear that? You're not a convert. You have been directed to follow him, which means you look like him, you smell like him, you talk like him, you think like him, you act like him. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Well, that's not all. You have to be a disciplined learner. Have you noticed that when you accepted Christ, you were not instantly mature? Has anybody noticed that? I mean, that happened to me. I noticed that, you know... In fact, you know, what's, what's so interesting is people expect people in the church to be mature. Do you notice that? Say, so what is this deal? We're just, we're just a bunch of sinners who've had the blood of cro the cross applied to our hearts, and we should be in the process now of growing. But the world expects us to be perfect, so we make any mistake at all. Man, look at that guy. He's a Christian over there. Well, we've got to learn to grow. We have to be disciplined learners. So we need to be about studying. So uh, when you were growing up, did you go to school? Did you have homework? Did you have tests? Did you do those things? Huh? No, you didn't? <laughs> did you pass? <laughs> Sometimes. Okay. All right. So as you applied yourself, did you learn the subject matter? Now, if you happen to have been in my science class, um, it would not be good enough for me if you gave me the right answer. You know why? I want to know how you got it. Show me you understand the principles 
that you have to apply to get to the right answer. Now, my wife, some of you know my wife is very intuitive. She's very right-brained, and she is not sequential, she's not analytical, and she doesn't add well. So coming up with the right answers for physics problems is a real challenge. She can almost always intuit the answer, but she would never pass one of my tests because she could never show me how she got it. You see, we, we've got to learn to be disciplined learners. We've got to apply ourselves so that we can learn about Jesus, come and grow in Jesus, and learn how he thinks, and learn how he acts, and learn how he processes material, and learn his principles. We've got to become soaked in him. We need to think about our life as a, a lifelong learning experience. You know, most of us can't wait to get out of school. Why is that? Because we're tired of, tired of studying, tired of reading, tired of taking tests, tired of writing papers. We don't want to work anymore. Well, I'm sorry. You don't get to make the rules. I don't get to make the rules. We got a Savior called Jesus that made the rules, and he says, you've got to grow. You have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And part of being a disciple is being a disciplined learner. You're in school for the rest of your life. So I know that was a pleasant message to think about. But the reality is, as you begin to engage in this, you know what happens to the Word of God? It comes alive. You know, I've gotten to the point now in, in my own growth where I, I can't hardly read the Bible and not have something jump at me. Does anybody have that experience? Just something jumps at you. It's like, whoa, unbelievable. And I may have read that text 30 times, 50 times. It doesn't matter. It's that time the Holy Spirit is, an, is just illuminating something to me at a new level I'd never seen it before. That's what happens to the Word. It's alive. I, I, know, I don't know of any other book I've ever read that's alive. The Bible is alive because it's the living Word of God. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the Word of God. It, it's in the Bible as we read it and as we are illuminated, it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. It comes to life in our hearts. So we've got to be disciplined learners. The third thing is we have to reproduce ourselves. Disciples reproduce themselves. One of the ways you know you're a disciple is you're making disciples. So if you don't have disciples identified, if you don't have a Peter, James, and John in your life, then you ought to ask yourself, wait a minute, what's wrong here? Go get with a church leader and say, would you help me make a course correction? And get my life lined up where I am growing as a disciple. I am looking like Jesus. And show me how to reproduce myself and others. And the very first person you should be reproducing yourself with is your children. The children that God gave you are a no accident. Whether they're natural, adopted, it doesn't matter. God gave them to you. And you need to pour the life of Jesus into those children. So this is what discipleship looks like. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, do you, do you think that it might take some time to make a disciple? You think buzzing into town for a series of meetings and buzzing out, you've made many disciples? Probably not. See, and I think that's what the Billy Graham crusade came to understand is the missing ingredient in what they were doing is they didn't, they didn't build lasting relationships. And they didn't have anybody in the cities that could take hold of these people and really disciple them. 
Well, we need, to be, we need to recognize that and we need to learn from that. We need to be thinking about who are we supposed to be depositing in? How do we do that? What are the relationships? How do we go about reproducing ourselves? And we need to know it's a journey. It's a process that's going to take time. Okay, we've got the directive. Now let's, let's talk about the, the next phrase. Let me just read it all again. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations means ethnic groups. It's literally the planet. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty, you know, clerical, doesn't it? Like we need to be doing something like this, you know, whatever. But the reality is we don't understand what this is really saying. Okay, let me give you some help here, if I may. Uh, the word baptizing, baptizing there is a very interesting word. Okay? And first of all, a baptism is an identification. Is it not? When you are baptized in water, you're identifying with Christ, who was buried and raised from the dead. Is that not what we say? We agree? So it's an identification with our Creator and our Savior, our Lord, our Master, the one that is discipling us, the one whom we're supposed to look like, smell like, talk like, think like, act like. So it's an identification. It's very important that we get that because identification precedes destiny. You will never reach your destiny. You will never fulfill your destiny unless you're secure in your identity in Christ. There's no, nothing more important in life than getting it that you belong to Jesus Christ. That needs to be infectious in us. Now, the second aspect of this word baptism is, is the word itself. There are two words in the Greek language that are used that could have been used for, for baptism here. The first word is babto. Now, babto, we know what this word means because we, we have some ancient Greek literature. Uh, a physician in about 200 B.C. wrote out a, a, uh, a recipe for how to pickle vegetables. Now, when you pickle vegetables, you are preserving vegetables, right? Isn't that the point? Okay, and in this recipe, the word babto is used, and the other word for baptism, which is baptismo, was used as well. So you have both words used. Okay, the babto means to take the vegetable and you put it in water and you dip it for the purpose of cleaning it, cleaning the surface, the outside. So any dirt or anything like that that's on it gets cleaned off. That's what it means to dip like that. The word baptizo means something different. It means to take the vegetable and dip it into vinegar, and that process now begins to transform the outer surface of the vegetable so that now the vegetable will be preserved. Do you hear that? So it's, one of them is just cleaning. The other one is about transforming. Which one of those words do you think was used in Matthew 28. The transforming word. This is the pickling word. Yes. This is not about just being dipped in water. This is about being transformed into the image of Christ. So the Great Commission is telling us here that the name of the game is transformation. Your identity in Christ is for the purpose of you being transformed 
and, and beginning to look like Christ, to think like Christ, to, to breathe like Christ, to, to act like Christ, to speak like Christ. That's the game we're in. Can we get in that game? Is that too hard? Okay. Do we really want it? I mean, do we want that level of commitment to God to where we would be transformed? That's the challenge we all have. Okay, so let's keep on going. Try to unpack this thing. So let me read it again. You know, repetition is not bad. Do you agree? Repetition is a great way to learn. So let's continue to try to learn here. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, when I first read that, I said, teaching them to obey? What is this? When I teach, I teach you facts. I teach you principles. I teach you content. What's this teaching to obey? Does that seem kind of strange? I mean, who do you teach to obey? Maybe an animal? Obedience training with animals. Yeah, you do that kind of stuff. I mean, is he saying we need obedience training? Is that what he's saying here? Unbelievable. Wow. So we've we got we to gotta do like this little critter up here. We've got to start, you know, getting up the blackboard and writing down, you know, okay, write this 20 times, you know, you know, da-da-da-da, whatever it is. I mean, what is this? We have to learn to obey. I thought I had, all I had to do was just learn doctrine, which I wasn't excited about, you know, or I just go to Bible studies. No, a disciple is one that has learned to obey. So how, how do you teach an animal to learn to obey? Some of you have animals. What do you do? Huh? You have a choke chain. <laughs> and what's the choke chain for? A little pain. And why do you need to inflict pain? Oh, you need to get their attention? So choke chain, a two before, something like that, does it? Rewards. Oh, you want rewards. Okay. So we reward good behavior. And you use the choke chain on bad behavior. Is that right? Am I getting this picture? Am I learning? You've got to have to teach me to obey now. I've got to learn how to do this. So here we have, this, this is really kind of crazy, you know. I've got, to, I've got to learn to obey. I thought I learned that when I was a kid. And furthermore, I've got to learn what he commanded. Okay, all right, all right. I have to learn to obey what he commanded. What did he command? Well, this word for command is a very interesting word because he could have used a lot of different words. But, you know, the Holy Spirit's very intentional about what he does. So he uses this word, entelomai. Entelomai is a compound word. And this is surprise you to know that the heart of this word is the word telos, that we get teleology from. And what's teleology? Those of you who've been around Dennis Peacock, you've heard that before. What's teleology? It's a study of purpose. At the very heart of this word is the idea, I'm commanding you in how to do your purpose. Can you let that sink in? Jesus' commands are designed to call out destiny in us. They're designed to put us on the path that God has called us to. Well, this, this, is, this is different. I, I didn't understand the Great Commission this way. You know, I thought it was just going to make converts, just send out missionaries and 
you know, supporting foreign missions and that kind of stuff. That's what I thought. But that's not what it is. It's a command for you and for me to get in line with God's principles of transformation to find God's purpose and destiny for our lives. Does that make you count? Feel like you count? You're significant? Now, some of you can't even receive the idea that God would love you enough to have a plan for you. That's a big problem for a lot of people. We all on some level have that problem. The challenge is can we get past the resistance and really embrace the truth? Just because you believe something, does that make it true? What makes it true is what? God speaks it. Whatever God speaks is truth. So we may have some blocks and things that get in our way and we can't receive this. Can we press in to press through those blocks? If you have a problem at work, do you just stop and sit down? What do you do? You press through. If you have a problem in your family, what do you do? If you want to solve it, you press through. If you have a problem in your church and you want to solve it, what do you do? You press through. We have got to learn to press through. We can't let our wrong thinking block truth in us. We have to be willing to say, I don't get that. It may be hard for me to receive it, but I know God, God loves me. He values me. He died for me. He has a plan for me, and I'm going to press through to find and discover that plan and to do it to his glory. We have to be taught to obey. This is why, if you're going to be taught to obey, go back to the animal illustration again. Does the animal teach himself? Who teaches the animal? A trainer. A trainer. We all need a trainer. If you do not have somebody in a, that's in a discipling relationship with you that you can't look to and say, that person's discipling me, you don't have a trainer. You hear me? You need a trainer. We all need a trainer. It's like a dog trying to train himself. You can't train yourself. Now, I know we have the independent spirit in this country. We all grew up with the Lone Ranger. Those of us that are over 50, remember the Lone Ranger? Da-da-da, you know, he and Toto would <clears throat> ride around doing good. And the picture that was painted by the media was, this is, hey, this is good. Being a Lone Ranger is good. But you notice the Lone Ranger never stayed anywhere. He wasn't part of any community. Nobody was speaking into his life. Tonto was not a partner. He was a slave. I mean, he was, he was an independent dude. But we were indoctrinated with a lie. And the lie was, it's good to be like the Lone Ranger. You don't get trained being like the Lone Ranger. You get trained in discipling relationships with godly people that are holding you accountable and calling you up into your destiny. That's what you need. And that's what he's telling us here. You need to be taught to obey everything I've commanded you, and my commands are about your destiny, what God has created you to do. The implication is Jesus' commands are designed to align us with the purpose of God in our lives. Am I get, are y'all getting this? Is this computing? I mean, I think I'm just talking to myself right now, which is okay, but I'd like to be talking to you too, okay? So I'd like to know, are you getting this? All right, we're nearly through here. Now, let me just give you some examples of Christ's commands. Now, these are simple commands. We all know them, but these are commands designed to point us to the destiny we have in Christ. Number one is the golden rule. What's the golden rule? A lot of times I will talk to people about it, and they let me know the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. That's not the golden rule. The golden rule is to treat others the way you want to be treated. 
is to love others enough to treat them with dignity and respect as people who have been created by God. That's what it is. Now, why do we need the golden rule? Because we need a relational context in which to do what God's called us to do. And you will never have a relational context if you don't practice the golden rule. That's designed to help you fulfill your destiny. That's a command of Jesus. Okay, how about this one? Deny yourself and follow Christ. Is that a command of Jesus? If you're going to be a disciple, you have to deny yourself and follow Christ. Why is that? How does that help me fulfill my destiny? Well, the problem we have, all have, is called our flesh. It's our sin nature. If that doesn't get crucified, if that doesn't get eradicated, we will never be in tune with God's plan and purpose for our lives. We will always be defaulting to our agendas. We will always be hearing our voice and not the Holy Spirit. And so our trainer, our discipler, one of his key roles is to say, you know, I'm not so sure you heard God. You know, we all run around talking about, well, God told me. That's the trump card. Did you know that? Yeah. That's, if, you want to, if you want to push somebody away, if somebody's coming into your life and, and wanting to help you, and you don't want the help, you just say, well, God told me. That just settled it. Because what you just did, you just stiff-armed him. You said, I don't want your input. I'm going to do what I want to do. The reality is, who here has a clear communication with the Father? Crystal clear. Nobody does. We all have the same problem. We're all limited by our perspective because God made it that way. So if you don't like that, you can take it up with God. I'm just here to report to you reality. Here's the physics of the universe is you are limited, I am limited. So what we have to do if we're ever going to grow and be trained as disciples is we have to learn to hear each other. Now here's a great picture. I like to use this in the seminar. You could take a, a, any little device, this little thing, this little clicker I'm holding, and I could point this at Bill and have Bill describe it. And Bill, how would you describe that thing? With an eyeball. And I had Barb. Barb, how would you describe that? Uh, rectangular glass. Okay. You need my glasses? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did, did you hear the two descriptions? Did they sound different? Yes. Okay. Which one's right? Both and why are they both right? Huh? Because all, all perspectives, looking at this, are correct. Now, who has... Complete perspective on this thing. Sees all sides, all angles, all directions. There's only one person that does, and that's God. And none of us can ever have by ourselves that perspective because we can't be anybody other than who we are. That's it. We are limited to who we are. I can't go be Tom or I can't go be Joe. I'm me. That's it. So if I want to gain a complete perspective like, and see it like God sees it, what do I need to do? I better start talking to you guys. Tina, what do you see? Joe, what do you see? JT, what do you see? Bill, what do you see? And I start assimilating all these different perspectives, and I am looking for the Holy Spirit to clarify what God is saying about whatever this represents. This could be a problem, a relationship issue, a business decision. It could be a marriage problem, a church problem, anything. Any issue in life is multifaceted and requires us to work in community so that we all can learn to obey. 
So we have to deny ourselves and follow Christ. We've got to get rid of the flesh, and a great way to do it is to be in community. Third one here, servant leadership. If you're going to fulfill your destiny, you're not going to do it by being a bully. Does anybody want to follow a bully? No, we don't want to follow a bully. We follow those that come and serve the, us, that lay down their lives for us, that look for ways to bless us. So here, Jesus has given us three simple commands. Every one of them is designed to enable us to fulfill the destiny that God's put in us. You see how this works? I mean, it's a wonderful revelation when you see what the Great Commission really is. It's all about you doing what God created you to do. And as you go out as a disciple of Jesus, you're going to infect other people. If the greatest way to evangelize is to be a great worker. Have you ever seen a, somebody at work that was a lousy worker and he's running around passing out tracks? You ever seen that? You know, and what do the people do with the tracks? Thank you very much in the trash can. I mean, the guy has no, nobody respects him. But you, you can take somebody that never says a word and just does great work, and people look at him and admire him, and they want to know what makes him tick, and, you know, tell me about you, and I want to be like you. That's what we ought to be. We should be so infectious that people want to be like us. They want to be around us. They seek us out. They want us to help them with life. They open the door for us to share the gospel. We get to share what makes us tick when we work with excellence. Can we get there? Can we do that? Yeah. Or is that just too much? Is that just like, oh, gee, this is too difficult. You know, I think I want to rest. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to want to give up. We can't give up. We're, we have been directed. We have a directive from the person that has all authority. Do we have a choice? We have no choice. If we truly are disciples of Jesus, if we're truly followers of the, of the God of the universe, we have no choice but to do this. Okay, so I'm a Christian. Now what? This is back to the question that I posed in the beginning. What's the point of getting saved? What's the whole point? Is it, okay, we're, we're satisfied it's more than fire insurance. We all agree it's more than fire insurance. Okay, we agree it's about becoming disciples, not becoming converts, being, being a disciple, one that looks like Jesus. So is that it? Is that it? What if we go back and say, why did God create this whole thing in the first place? What was it all about? Huh? Go back to his creation, and what did he do in his creation? He tells us why he created man, right? And why did he create man? To rule his world. This is the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And did you ever notice, when you read the creation account, how God repeats over and over again that his creation is good? It's good. Every day it's good. The, the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day, he said it is very good. Now, do you know good is an attribute of God? We use good, we just, we, we're slang with it, just throw it around all the time. But the way we know it's an attribute of God is just look at the interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus. The rich young ruler said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. So Jesus just told us that good is an attribute of God. And so when God is saying it is good, he's saying it reflects me. And at the end of the sixth day, he says, it really reflects me. This is me. This physical universe is me, and I made you guys, you humans, to rule it. 
Doesn't that give you some dignity? Man, we've got a purpose. We've got a reason for being here. Each one of us has a sub-purpose under this creation mandate. The problem that came along was sin. Sin torpedoes us from doing what God created us to do. And so the whole point of the cross is about dealing with sin so we can get free to do what God created us to do. Can we get that? You've got to get this because this sets you free. Because now you go to work, you're, you're on assignment. You're not going to a job. You're going to Mission Impossible. You can't, it's something that God has created you to do, and you can't do it in your flesh. You've got to have the, the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Lord, principles of the Word of God, and you've got to have your trainer there helping you do that, whatever it is you're doing well. That's what we're all called to do. We're called to master God's universe, to multiply and master. Subdue means to master. We bring dominion. What we're doing as we advance our technology is we're bringing dominion. We're bringing the rule and reign of God over his universe. This technology we have is great, but, you know, did we invent this technology? We discovered this technology. God created this technology. We've discovered how he wants us to use it, how it facilitates efficiency, how it enables us to do our job of, of ruling his creation even better. That's the real game. The Great Commission does not nullify the, the creation mandate. And I find most Christians just don't get that. They don't get it that just because sin came in Genesis 3, well, Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't get cut out of your Bible. It's still there, and it's still applicable. What Jesus did was freed us to do what we were put here to do in the first place. So, Lord, give us the grace to get that. Um, finally, the final phrase here, this, this really is exciting here, is there some comfort Jesus gives us some comfort. Now, let me ask you something. When you comfort somebody, why do you comfort somebody? Because they're going through something difficult, right? You know, if you're getting ready to go into surgery, what do you do with the person that's getting ready to be operated on? Oh, I'm praying for you. You know, I want you to know I'm going to pray for you and the doctor, this, every, the medical staff. I'm praying for grace and favor that this will be an efficacious surgery. Man, I'm with you. I'm holding your hand. We're in prayer. We're comforting each other, right? That's what we do. Because he's getting ready to suffer something. Well, may I report to you that Jesus is comforting us because it's a challenge to do what he's called us to do. He said, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Because guess what, guys? It's going to be a war. It's going to be a battle. Now, those of you that are highest personalities, I know you react to this. And, oh, God, what a fight. Well, I'm sorry. I, I didn't make the rules. You didn't make the rules. God made you, and you can fight. You just got to decide, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step up and do it. Now, the D's are loving it. I mean, give me, give me a fight. I'm ready for a fight. Of course, they don't know sometimes they're going to get run over, but it's okay. They'll be back up to fight again. Jesus is here every day in every situation, no matter what it is, to walk us through and to give us the strength that we need to fight the battles. I want to tell you a story um, to give you, give you some hope. Uh, this is a story. This is a true story. This illustrates the point of the message this morning. In 1825, the Scottish Presbyterians sent a team of missionaries to South Africa. And you can see the part. It's called the Lovedale Mission Station. It's right here. 
uh, toward the tip of South Africa. Their purpose was to evangelize. See, they didn't understand the Great Commission. Their purpose was to evangelize the indigenous population. For 40 years, they tried to evangelize these people. They were, uh, was tribal warfare, there was cannibalism, there was poverty, all kinds of suffering, witchcraft, bad stuff. For 40 years, they had virtually no success. So finally, in the 1860s, they abandoned their station. And this guy here, uh, James Stewart, came along. From 1867 to 1905, he did something different. He understood the Great Commission. What he did is he felt called of God to go down there and start a school. And he was going to start a school out of the abandoned mission station that the Scottish Presbyterians had built. He got permission to do that. They let him do it. He said, we're out of here, man. You can have it. So he took their abandoned mission station, and he began to teach the local people basic skills. How do you farm? How do you fish? How do you cook? You know, how do you build houses? How do you build roads? Just how do you have a garden? Basic skills. And as he's teaching them basic life skills, he's giving them a biblical worldview. This is the way God made the universe to work. And this is God made us. We're human beings. We are here for a reason. And he began to share with them the gospel message in the midst of training them how to live. Fast forward 40 years. What do you think has happened to this culture? At the end of 40 years, it is absolutely overflowing with success and prosperity. Everybody's gainfully employed. The, the area has been well developed. Wonderful roads, buildings, great food supply, plenty of resources for everything. It's overflowing on the neighboring communities and virtually everyone in the community is a Christian. This is what happens when you decide to become a disciple. And when you decide, I'm not going to make converts, I'm going to make disciples. And I will start one at a time, two at a time, three at a time, however many God gives me, and I'm going to train them to obey the commandments of Jesus that call them into their divinely ordained destiny. That's what the Great Commission is calling us to do. Can we get a vision to do that? Can we really get this? Because if we can get us, this will change your church. This will change your city. This will change your state. You think your state might not changing? Your state needs change. Every state in the United States needs to be changed. We need the world change. The only people that will change the world are the people that changed this Af South African community 100 years ago. And that is disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the grace to be your disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation, your truth. We're thankful for the reality that you've called each and every person here, that there is no, there is no accidents in your creation, that you have made each one of us just like you want us to be, and you've placed us in the context that you want us to be in, and you've called us to do specific things to accomplish your purpose on this earth. Lord, give us the grace to search it out, to find it, and give us the courage and strength to walk it. Lord, make us disciples. Give us discipling relationships. Enable us to be so filled with you but we, that we can't help but disciple others. 
So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you, to the true meaning of the Great Commission. In Jesus' precious name, amen.